Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books of Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. As we close in on the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War, historians continue to ask how average Americans were persuaded to throw their unstinting support behind a conflict in 1917 that, just a few months earlier, was so completely rejected by a majority of the public. Now, the customary answers linking war support to the rationale offered by the Wilson administration seem to ring hollow, especially given the skepticism such efforts are greeted with today. Our guest, Andrew Huebner, introduces a far more personal dynamic in his book, Love and Death in the Great War. Specifically, Americans genuinely believed that they were taking part in a war to keep their families and futures safe from German aggression. To a large degree, following a course set by propaganda, Americans personalized and romanticized the war to a degree never really seen before. Rather than being an agent of change then, Hubner presents the war as a call to normalcy, one which would reassert white Anglo-Saxon masculine prerogatives in a society that, under the progressives, had become unmoored from its past. Andrew, thank you for joining us at New Books of Military History. Thank you. I appreciate you having me, Bob. You know, I don't think it'd be a far stretch to describe your book as a deeply personal account of the First World War. I mean, not only from the, the narrative vistas you introduce through the diaries and letters of the protagonists you introduce through the book, but your own connection to some of the personas described here. Now, now I get the idea of a project being tied to a personal inspiration or connection, but I was wondering if you could speak toward the the decision to use individual stories as anchors throughout the book. Was this a conscious decision from the start of the project or did it evolve over time? Um, Yeah, that's a good question. Um, It, it evolved over time and it actually has, um, fairly deep roots, as you might imagine, since, as you said, one of my own family members is a part of the story. Um, really goes back to my childhood. Um, a, a relative of mine, my father's cousin, J- Jim Hebner, who I talk about in the acknowledgments, um, had always talked to me from an early age about my great un- un- uncle, Arthur Hebner. And so I'd always had that. That was actually his story was part of a broader set of interests I had um, that got me into history from the beginning. So that, that story has been kind of percolating for me for a long time. Um, then the next sort of step in it was when I was in graduate school, an undergraduate student I had gave me a set of letters uh, that ended up being the May and Lige uh, letters that that undergird that part of the book. Um, and she, as long story short, she had had lost um, a kind of a professional interest in them, thought that I might be able to do something with them. So she gave me this big box of letters that had um, not only – the, the soldier's letters, Elijah's letters, which is somewhat common, but also May, his, his wife's letters uh, that had made it back from the, the war zone. Um, so those have been those two 
sets of stories had been had been um, kind of simmering in my mind for a long time. And then when I decided to do this book uh, a few years back, it, it kind of, from the beginning, I had the idea to answer your question of of making individual stories kind of the spine of the book, with those two as um, as as a starting point. As you can imagine, though, if you make a decision to do a, a book like that, you've got to, there's a lot of of choices to be made. And I've read other models of this. You can you know, the anchor it on one family story or on four or on 10 or on, and then it, it changes the character of it, but you could, you know, make it more of a, a, a quantitative study and do, you know, hundreds. So early on, I made, you know, after making the decision to kind of pair the national story with these personal stories, I had to make a, I have a whole file still kind of on, you know, candidates for who would end up being um, key figures in the book. So I was going to do four five, six, something like that. I, I was looking around the, the country at different archival collections for something that might be a good fit and ended up coming upon the collection of the Alabama soldier, George Waring Houston here at, at my, my university special uh, collections. So George Waring Houston, uh, who, who was from Selma, went to the university of Alabama where I teach his pa- his papers are here, which include a lot of photographs and letters um, and so he became a third candidate. And I looked at a bunch of other possibilities, ended up finding Natalie Scott, the nurse from New Orleans as well. And then there's some other characters in the book uh, that that are, are I also follow, like the author Thomas Boyd uh, and some others. But I decided at some point in there that, you know, juggling more than that, I thought would start to get kind of disorienting. Uh, there's some other examples of books like this, books that are very good, but that have, you know, nine or 10 or 11 major characters in it. For me, I just, what I wanted to do, I thought was suited better to reducing the number so we could really focus it on them. So to answer your question, it was a conscious decision to have it uh, anchored in the stories of regular people. And that's kind of how I came to the, the roster that I ended up with. You know, you say in the introduction that this project is more about the meaning of war than its causes or experience. You know, what do you think the stories of your principal subjects tell us about the ways we understand and process the experience of war? That's a good question. And you're right. That's at, at kind of at the heart of what I'm, I'm trying to do. Because as I say in the book, I mean, I think, you know, administrations have their reasons for bringing our country into war. Uh, but then it's a very different thing to get people motivated to sacrifice for them. And people, you know, and the state usually tries to do that in certain ways. But I also think that regular people and plus the architects of public culture, you know, in the newspapers and songwriters and so on, develop their own sort of reasons for supporting a conflict or ways of finding a kind of larger meaning in it. What I think the book shows, I hope, is that the regular people in the, in the story, you know, I can talk a little bit about what sort of images they confronted in public culture, but, and, and, and my kind of underlying assumption in the book is that they, you know, we can't point direct causal lines in this sort of history. We can't, I can't show my actors reading something in a newspaper that day and then that night writing a letter showing that they've imbibed that idea and that sort of thing. It's not, it's a fuzzier sort of work, but I find that they sought meaning in the, in the, in the war, and, and lent it meaning in ways that often resembled what, what was being kind of peddled in public culture. So I do think there are connections there. In short, and I can talk in particular, let's say, about the Alabama soldier. He and his family, and I have letters you know, from him to his parents and then some other letters from his parents to each other and, and from his siblings and so on, suggested there was a lot of that they, they, as I think public culture was doing, found a very found the war very personal for them. And this is maybe something that transcends this war. I'm not suggesting that it's particular to it. 
But in his letters, and he was a very patriotic young man, he enlisted voluntarily after Wilson's war speech in April of 17. Patriotic guy, parent had grandparents who were Confederate generals. Of course, that's a you know obviously a kind of mixed uh, lineage of patriotism, but but a patriotic kind of military oriented family. He and his letters never, uh, you know, and I've read them all uh, pretty carefully, and maybe with a couple minor exceptions, almost never mentioned any kind of broader purpose or cause in the war. It, for him, his military enlistment uh, was motivated by, and this doesn't is not to diminish it at all in terms of how much we should admire it or anything like that. It's just to suggest where uh, the family kind of found meaning. It was to make his parents proud. It was to prove that he could do it. It was to prove he was a man. It was to, you know, again, a, a very occasional references, sort of vague references to things like the flag and that sort of thing. But, it, but, but, but by and large, with that family and also the other family I look at closely, who I have letters from, May and Lodge D's, 99% of, of their discussion about what they were doing in the army uh, and in fighting the war was personal. So that's, that, that's the kind of a short answer to how I think the family's uh, point to uh, to meaning or found meaning. Well, it's interesting how you you know you describe you know this this question of masculinity and of manhood with with the two principal families. You know, and I guess you it's fair to say that you firmly place the American experience of the First World War as being primarily a study of masculinity and duress. I'm, I'm curious how so. Yeah, that's a good question. Um the way I set this up in the beginning of the book, and again, I'm not the first person to notice this, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, many prominent Americans believed, and whether, you know, sort of regular people out in the country believe this is a different question, but there's a, a kind of a prominent public discussion of the country's masculine character. And um, Kristen Hoganson's book, uh, Spanish-American War, is a, a great entree to that subject. There are all kinds of reasons that, that historians have, have pointed to closing of the frontier, the kind of the facelessness of industrial work. It ties in with immigration, urbanization, and some other factors that, uh, that prominent figures worried that the, the country's net masculine fiber was sort of withering. And Hoganson's argument, as you probably know, is that that's part, a big reason that we got into the Spanish-American War in 1898. Um, I'm sort of offering a kind of a similar argument to some extent for the First World War, although I differ from her study in 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 terms of this, her you know in the scope and the uh, focus of it where she focuses on our the decision makers and leaders uh, among other characters. I'm I'm more I focus on those people a little bit, but I'm I'm looking as you know more ground level. But I see sort of similar factors at work in public culture leading up to our entrance into World War One. Calls to the country's manhood once war it seems imminent. There's all sorts of imagery. Uh, that suggests the war is something that can burnish masculine kind of chivalric virtue. You're probably well aware of all the visual imagery of the Germans in particular as kind of raping, pillaging monsters, the implication there. And, and then the explicit message in many other, much other imagery is that the American doughboys would sort of rescue the, the French and Belgian damsels in distress and by implication, protect American women and children from that uh, same threat. So, so these sort of implied or, or explicit calls to the, uh, the country's masculine vigor were quite common in the, the lead up to our entrance in the war, and then particularly after the declaration of war in popular visual um, and textual culture. 
And I find also as we can get into some purchase uh, of those ideas among the regular people that I study. Well, you know, so let's stick with Kristen Hokinson for a moment, because I also found interesting, you know, the way that she portrays dissent with the war. You know, of course, she notes how people who were opposed to the Spanish-American War and to the American Imperial Project found themselves being very vulnerable to accusations of deviant effeminacy in this contest over values. Now, is that dynamic still in place in the First World War? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Um, If you look at the congressional debate, in April of 1917, there were, you know, there were not a huge number, but uh, in the end, but a vocal anti-war uh, minority. And I don't remember off the top of my head if I found people calling the, these opponents effeminate in particular, but there's a lot of language that implies that sort of thing. There's a lot of debate over the entrance in the World War One, which, of course, you know, then we know how the, the vote ended up going. That where the terms of chivalry and masculinity were quite explicit. In fact, as I point out in the book, some of the anti-war people actually sort of suggested that they agreed that you know the country's chivalric kind of character sh- should be invoked when when needed, but that they didn't think it was being invoked or was it was needed in this case. So they said things like. You know, if our women and children or our daughters were being threatened by the jury, I'd be the first one to, to you know, jump off the porch and go attack uh, and respond to that or protect our uh, home folk. Uh, but that's not going on here, they, they argued. Whereas, of course, the pro-war majority was arguing that's exactly what was going on, among other many other arguments. Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin had his masculinity questioned over and over in the months after the war declaration. And I have examples of that in the book. The other anti-war dissenters uh, that I talk about in there, particularly folks who agitated against the draft, often had not only their patriotism attacked, uh, although that was a big part of it, but also, again, their kind of sense of gender roles, that that they were uh, – even mothers who wanted, you know, wanted to protect their own sons from the draft were seen as having kind of corrupted gender roles. Mothers' jobs – their opponents said in wartime was to to send their sons off to to war. And there are uh, several prominent patriotic songs to that effect. America, here's my boy is a good example, which kind of, which kind of went against the anti-war music that I'm sure you're familiar with. uh, Like I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier that had been popular earlier. So in other words, to summarize, I think, yeah, this, the, the debate over the war was often filtered through these tones of masculinity in these kind of ways. Well, you know, I also appreciate the way that you, you place the military as an institution into better context in progressive era society. You know, before 1916, military service is not inherently considered as an acceptable expression of honorable masculinity for the American middle class. Absolutely. You know, what changed? How, how does that change? Yeah, that's a good question. Um no, you're right. I mean, it, the, the army in the 19th century, I mean, there, there's an adulation of you know, officers and generals and that sort of thing. And I kind of generalized adulation, I think, of Civil War veterans. Um, but as you say, it's not a profession that a lot of people were flocking to. And then there's still a lot of, um, I think, residual anti kind of militarist sentiment carrying over from the country's founding, fear of standing armies, et cetera. Well, it even uh, ties into, you know, the, the, you know, the sexuality of, of the soldier or, or oh, yeah. the vice of the soldier. Absolutely, yeah. There's a the soldier. Soldier definitely had a 
kind of reputation for debauchery and that sort of thing. I think the big change in World War One is the draft. As you know, you know, there had been drafts in the Civil War, but they were highly unpopular and sort of smaller by comparison. Uh, whereas in World War One, you have 75% or 72%, I think, of American soldiers in the army uh, were drafted. And so that kind of popularizes, democratizes, whatever term you want to use, the, the military experience. And however, though, as you as you say, I mean, that, that reputation of the military doesn't, uh, as a kind of debauched uh, refuge for the down and out sort of thing, doesn't go away just because you're drafting a couple million people. So as I talk about in the book, the army has to work hard and the, and the agencies, these sort of quasi-official agencies that end up kind of monitoring the Doughboy's behavior and trying to affect it, manipulate it, are very much dealing with that kind of older reputation of the American soldier that's not particularly positive and actually trying to deal quite explicitly with that reputation, not only by trying to monitor and police the Doughboy's behavior in terms of alcohol and prostitution in particular, but also manage the the public facing side of that. Other authors, Nancy Bristow's book is very good on this, have written about this, that, you know, the Wilson administration had to deal with letters from mothers saying, you know, I don't want my boy in the army. The army has the reputation that you were, you were alluding to. In fact, there are a couple, you know, there are examples, probably more than a couple of mothers saying that they would rather have their sons killed in the in the war than to have their character besmirched. So Will, the Wilson administration is dealing with, the military is dealing with this. And so there's the Commission on Training Camp Activities that's created and other partner agencies and the Red Cross and, and, the, and the Y and those sort of groups that, that work really hard and obviously not successfully in, in all cases, although in some cases so, um, to keep the Doughboys separated from the kind of perceived negative influences, mainly of French women, uh, but also women in camps around around camps in the United States, but also uh, alcohol. So, so you're right. I, you know, there's a, a negative reputation of the army. The army does a lot to to kind of work on that, and I think the draft is the big pivot point there that necessitates this kind of much broader attack on that on that problem. Well, you know, of course, the crisis isn't just you know about gender identity. I mean racial and ethnic identity and you know the presumption of a hegemonic whiteness was also at stake wasn't it yeah exactly um you know i uh, there's um kind of the, some of the framing i do in the book on this question is that you know the normative doughboy in public culture was white uh there's an assumption and this of course washes with a lot of Wilson's own racial views and his his rhetoric about saving white civilization and that sort of thing. There's a it's a big part of the chivalric kind of masculine narrative that I'm talking about is that it's that there's an assumption of whiteness and that that white men will and this ties into much broader sort of stories of kind of imagined threats to white um, gendered order that ties into the kind of spate of lynchings and the fear of you know, black, quote unquote, black beast rapists and, and fear of immigrants. Uh, a lot of that was sort of articulated in the late 19th, early 20th century in this sort of combined racialized and sexualized tones. So in World War One, then when we when we when the, the state and its advocates start to kind of package this war as I argue, as a kind of this battle over chivalry or to prove or redeem American chivalry, it's very much cast as a, a white effort, a white a, 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 an effort to redeem white chivalric virtue. And of course, as I talk about in, in the project, this gets complicated and challenged, which one of the big themes of the book is the way that, that that original story, that kind of love story or that story of a war for family gets challenged. 
And one of the ways it does is that there are, of course, a lot of people of color in the army and also a lot of immigrants, many of whom were not considered white yet, as you probably know. So mm-hmm. so that that's one of the, the wrinkles in the whole story is that what does the army then do and, and the American public to, and the and public culture do with the sort of interruptions in a way of that white chivalric story when you have black doughboys, for example, going to the war zone. And a lot of this, this has the, the, the tensions there have uh, dramatic and some couple cases, few cases, tragic uh, results. So yeah, you're right. Race, race is a big part of it. Well, you know, you begin with the Dees family, you know, that is the, the future married couple of Elijah and May Dees. How were they a typical or even maybe atypical American family at the onset of the war? Yeah, that's a good question. It's something I, I thought about a lot in the beginning was whether to deal with how to deal with this or a question of typicality. And I have a sentence about it in the introduction, I think. I don't know that they were typical or atypical. It's hard, you know, the, the, the study that I'm doing is is sort of the way I, I kind of think of it is that the families that I've picked and and, and I, I of course connect them to broader trends in po- in public culture and other families and other things. So I think I, I hope I build an architecture of 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 connection kind of I didn't pick them because they said certain things in their letters. Uh, you know, I told you how I, they, their their story came into my orbit. I did audition lots of other you know potential families to be in the in the book, and and so I got a kind of sense that the, the things that the Dees were talking about, you know, were, were resonant and and sort of um, I don't know what the word would be common, normal. I don't know, but the kind of things other people talked about. But I didn't. I sort of purposely, in a way, Bob didn't pick people that I, you know, were kind of saying the things I wanted them to say. Um, in fact, I had a few other families that, that I thought about using who have letters that are, that are visible online and that sort of thing, who actually kind of would have been better in a way if my argument, they, they said sort of some of the things I wanted my doughboys and, and their families to say more explicitly. And I didn't, didn't end up using them for a lot of reasons. But my point is I kind of just picked, they, 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 you know, they, I, you know, I guess I don't, I can't prove it, but I, my sense is that they were a, a kind of typical sort of Midwestern family. He was, they come from a farming community, a kind of rural part of southeastern Missouri. He entered the army. He was sort of the kind of soldier you were alluding to earlier, a kind of down and outer, didn't have a, a real good education, um, enlists in the army, ends up going to the border with Mexico briefly, then comes back. And so he's, he's one, he's a regular. And so, um, and she's, you know, a, I would imagine she was somewhat more kind of literate and articulate, educated maybe than the average rural person in that part of the country at the time, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but she was studying, you know, she was, she finished high school and went on to be a school teacher. So that, you know, again, I don't have um, kind of literacy statistics or whatever on that, but, but she, she was, like I say, a school teacher and a much more kind of literate letter writer, as I point out in the book. Her letters were a joy to read. His were uh, a tough slog, to put it mildly. <laughs> um, I'm not surprised, actually. Yeah, yeah. And handwriting handwriting is, is was rough. I actually learned to kind of speak his language. And I, I'm probably, the, I guess, I know this is a dubious honor, but the, the, the country's foremost expert on Elijah D's handwriting. So anyway, he, so he, he expresses ideas in a much less sort of... Um, uh, fluid way than she did, uh, but I guess I uh, to to get back to your question, I think they, you know, they were regular people. I guess you know they weren't they were not off the charts in terms of education. They were not you know uh, they were not, and they also were not on the other end of the spectrum either. They were uh, he had he had some education, she had a little more, but they were you know they had regular sorts of interests as far as I can measure such things. And and getting to know them through their letters, I've I've gotten that impression. So. The, the point I make in the beginning of the book in terms of framing my choices of these people is that, 
you know, I think together they offer a, a vivid picture of American life in that period, a kind of a deep dive. I can't claim that they, in some sort of kind of in a quantitative sense, are representative of the country, although they do come from, you know, different parts of the country. I tried to, to at least throw the, the net widely on that. But that, that's sort of how I, I think of that issue. Well, you next introduce us to Natalie, Vivian, Scott. You know, the, the obvious question is why her? But I think tied to that also is, you know, how does she become, for you at least, you know, this symbol of perhaps feminine progressive support for the war? She, again, in terms of the sort of auditioning, I wanted to have, as especially as the story, as the book went along, and I actually added her once I'd already written a few chapters and then had to kind of backfill her in, I suppose. The story started to take on, as, as you were alluding to earlier, uh, this more explicitly kind of racialized and gendered sort of character. That story of a kind of a war for family it became clear, to make a long story short, that there were these heavy kind of racial and gendered elements to that. So I started thinking it was important to have not only May Dees in the in the story, but also a woman who went to the war zone. And I started kind of looking around for potential, because um, as you know, I mean, when you do these projects, it's all about what kind of sources are available. Uh, there's often um, voices you want in a project that you can't get, uh, that sort of thing. So I ended up finding her papers at Tulane University in New Orleans. And she had been the subject of one book, sort of a hagiographic book by actually a nephew of hers or something like that. They mainly just sort of reprinted her letters, basically. But uh, went down there, started looking at her letters. Uh, we were talking about letters earlier in Lige D's. Uh, she had the sort of opposite problem. Well, you know, unbelievably long letters, 20, 25 page, very tiny script letters back to her mother, who she called Muddy. And they're all collected at Tulane because she went to um, Newcomb College, which was sort of the woman's affiliated wing of Tulane University in the 19 teens. And started looking at her letters, and I actually I, I looked at her stuff first and decided that she wasn't going to work, uh, and then uh, went back and kind of looked at them a second time and started realizing that they that she would, because she ended up talking about a lot of this things uh, sort of not always directly but sometimes implicitly that I was interested in the book and the way that the Doughboys were framed in this kind of romantic kind of language. She talked a lot about that in her letters, and um, also kind of to get back to your point. I, I realized that in the beginning, she did sort of embody, as you say, the kind of a progressive support for the war, a heavy belief in it, not only for the sort of progressive purposes that, that you're probably well aware, uh, you know, progressives hope the war would sort of advance, uh, but also out of humanitarian um, interest in the Belgian refugees. That's sort of how she got into it. And also just with a, a kind of a, a rally around the flag kind of patriotism, which she was a very, a very um, strong kind of example of. So she gets interested in the war of doing kind of humanitarian stuff in New Orleans for the Belgian uh, Belgian women and children, um, hosting fundraisers and that sort of thing. She was very active in the New Orleans sort of humanitarian scene, probably through connections uh, at Newcomb and Tulane. And then she applies to go to France uh, with the Red Cross and uh, ends up doing that. So, so she and that's how she gets into the story, and that's how that that's. Um, that's how I ended up kind of including her. You know, you have Wary Houston as well. I mean, he's attending the University of Alabama at the time of the war's declaration. You know, he's enrolled, you know, and really it's it's the new reserve officers training corps at the time right. there. Right. You know, you, you you framed earlier, you know, alluded to Houston's 
motivation. I mean, equal parts fulfilling familial expectations as of proving his own mettle or his own manhood. How does that play out for him before he goes to France? Yeah, good question. Um, it plays out. He, um, it, it really mainly plays out uh, with his relationship with his father. It's interesting. Another kind of epistolary footnote is that he, and I think this was common, you know, in the kind of letter writing era, which of course is kind of long gone in a lot of ways. He wrote separate letters to his parents. Um, so his, sometimes on the same day, and this is including into his time in France, he would write a letter uh, to his mother and also a different letter to his father. And he talked about very different things in those letters. But this is something he tended to take up with his father. He he said over and over, and actually he would sort of confess, it's interesting, he would confess his, and, and this is you know, common in sort of the gender gendered politics of the era, but he would he would confess his his fears and his loneliness and his homesickness, which I, I stress again and again in his book because he has stressed those things again and again in his letters. He would call himself a sad bird and, and talk about, you know, wanting to cry, all this kind of stuff to his mother. Uh, but then to his father, he would talk about which branch of the army he was hoping to end up in because when he was in the kind of officer's training school, it was not clear which, which branch you had to sort of uh, – there was a lot of uncertainty about which branch you'd end up in. There were a lot of politics about which were the, the best ones to be and all that sort of thing. So he would he would sort of stress to his father that he, he wanted to prove his mettle, which branch would be the best way to do that, that sort of thing. He also brought up a lot – and this is where the manhood stuff kind of comes in in a sort of um, subtle way – wanting to make his parents proud. He often would talk, he'd say, you know, this boy is going to make you, you guys proud, that sort of thing. When he left for France, he said this boy, or when he got his commission, he said, you know, this boy is finally, you know, second lieutenant in the U.S. Army, that sort of thing. And all I can do, mama, is to hope to make you proud. So there's a heavy kind of familial rhetoric that, that wove through his framing of why he was in the army and what he was doing there. I also quote this in the book that, you know, when his at one point, his long and kind of winding road toward becoming an officer, his father wrote to him, you, you, you must not fail, and which was made it sort of very clear. And it's kind of unclear from letters, you know, does he mean that in a kind of finger-wagging, stern kind of way, or is it meant in sort of a sympathetic way, hard to say. But I think it's clear that it was very important to his family's sense of kind of pride and, and, and patriotism and honor that he do well and, and make it into the, you know, there was no, no talk in these letters of fearing for his safety or anything like that. Again, not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. It's just all very clear that their, their familial virtue and honor and their, the kind of standing in the community. They were part of the, I think the kind of the, um, the elite in Selma all was very yeah. tied into his, his military service. Yeah. I mean, he comes off as a member of the local gentry and I guess, you know, as part of that, there is this sense of obligation and responsibility to uphold their values as well. Absolutely. And I, I think that was a big part of his motivation. I mean, I think, and it, it was true of some of his friends too. I mean, he had, there's guys that I track in the book that he went to high school with in Selma, then they went, some of them all went to UA here, uh, University of Alabama also with him. Some of them wrote to his parents, also uh, uh, wrote to, to to them after he died. And a lot of them sort of, they, they, they you can tell in, in putting together the, in the kind of the ethos of all their letters, exactly as you say, they were part of this, the gentry in Selma. His dad was kind of a bank and insurance guy. And this is obviously also a totally segregated and this kind of comes up with his story later in terms of race but anyway um yeah so he he's very much a part of that set and and it was clear that for him 
again, this is not to downplay his patriotic motivations at all. I don't think it does at all. They just accompanied or sort of um, gave meaning to them. Uh, but that familial and community pride and standing was also a big part of what he was he was after. Well, you know, let's get closer to your story with Andrew Hebner. You know, he's not from the South. You know, he's a member of a, I guess, a relatively small German-American community up in Wisconsin at the start of the war. And, you know, with Hebner, we are introduced to the complexities of war for an ethnic community that's identified mm-hmm. with the enemy. How, how do they fare in the larger perspective of state and national opinion but then also, how does Arthur Hebner directly confront you know, his induction, training, and assimilation into the military as a German-American? I mean, I found that fascinating, I thought. Yeah, he's, um, he's kind of an interesting character in the book because, as you know, I mean, I, the, the thing about him is I don't, you know, kind of unfortunately or you know, tragically is maybe too strong, but I don't have a lot of his words I say at one point late in the book, you know, this, I won't go into the details here, but we have some speculation in our family about why that is, because he wrote letters back. We know that. We know that he wrote letters back, but they don't survive. So he's sort of an interesting, almost kind of ghostly character in the book, because we don't really hear from him much um, other than that one postcard he writes back to his brother, Otto, that basically says, I, I made it to Camp Grant and I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> and he writes that in, in German. So I, I, it's a sort of sad fact of the book for me is I don't, I I wish I knew more about how he in particular um, understood his experience. Um, So everything I do know about what he thought has come through family stories and all, and that relative Jim, I mentioned whose father, Walter was was Arthur's brother, if that makes sense. So, so we, we, that's the way I, I know a lot of what he sort of thought about things. Also, as you know, I mean, he's, he dies at the end of the war. So we of course don't have his own recollections. So so what I tried to do instead with him in the book is try to paint a picture of the German-American community in the area where he was from. Like you say, he's from a small, very rural farming community in southern Wisconsin. The biggest city around there is called Watertown, which I just visited actually a couple of Decembers ago and saw a lot of interesting things there that relate to the family and also to that community, but also some other smaller towns like um, Exonia and, and Lebanon. So I do uh, a bit of contextual work in the book on that section of Wisconsin uh, and also of Wisconsin more broadly, which, of course, had a very heavy German-American population. My own family, the, the, his family, his father was Christian Hebner, who was an, an immigrant from a German-speaking part of what was then the Russian Empire, and which is part of Poland today. It gets a little murky. Uh, but they were heavily German. I say in the book, you know, they had a sign up in their house in this how German is spoken. Every all indications are that their Arthur's family and and German Americans more broadly, and again we're generalizing about a very large population, certainly hoped that war wouldn't come. Hoped they wouldn't have to fight on the side of a country that was fighting against Germany, but were supportive of it and and lent their sons to it in many cases, including in my families, once it came. You know, again, I think they hoped not to have to make a sort of a choice or, or um, and certainly opposed entrance in large numbers as many of other Americans did before we got in. Uh, but once they did, and this is also true of a lot of the German language newspapers, um, despite the, the, the virulent attacks on German Americans that you're well aware of, I think in general, 
through their support to their their adopted country once the war came. So, but it did create conflict for them, of course. And I'm sure, again, I, I wish I had direct kind of language on this, but you know, I'm sure it was dev- more you know added to the devastation for his family that he was killed fighting against the German. Obviously, a lot of ironies there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly occurring at the very end as well. To historians like Richard Slotkin, the primary story of America's World War One is the promise and ultimately the failure of assimilation for ethnic and racial minorities. You know, and when we we come to the question of African Americans, you know, the, their experience is wholly opposite than that of the rest of the country and what you've described so far. You know, so I, I found your choice, you know, of William Buckner. Really surprising, and I thought very illustrative. You know, I mean, I, I could only imagine, you know, there must have been a temptation to single out a more familiar narrative, perhaps, you know, Needham Roberts, James Reese Europe. Yeah. But I think by choosing Buckner, you introduce a far more contentious, damaged, but also authentic case study to the larger narrative of, you know, how we remember World War One. How did you find his story? Yeah, uh, that's also a good question. I I found him in, I believe, in Chad Williams's book, Torchbearers of Democracy. And I was really taken with his story. I sort of made some effort to dig into it a little further and and found a couple other minor kind of sources on him. But, and as you say, some of the other characters you mentioned, Needham Roberts, James Europe, I mentioned in the book, but don't, don't make... Um, kind of central characters. Yeah, I just thought I thought um, Buckner was, as you say, you know, a tragic, also kind of voiceless character in the story, sort of like Arthur is. And you know, and Chad does a great job writing about him. I don't, I don't know that I add anything particularly revolutionary to what Chad did uh, with him. But I, but I want to tie him into the, my story about the way the war was pitched as this kind of chivalric crusade. And then also tie Buckner into the broader experience of, of black soldiers in, in France, which, as you say, was quite different from uh, the experience of white soldiers. And in fact, was a big part of the disruption of that that story of, of kind of white male chivalry that the army fought hard to kind of protect and defend. And in his case and some others with tragic consequences. So, yeah, I, I wanted to shine a, a light on him, uh, which, you know, again, other scholars have done, uh, but also make him you know, again, show his, his relationship to the broader themes I was trying to track. For me, I mean, yeah, I, I read this stuff. I do this stuff. You know, I work in the first yeah. world of my field. So I'm kind of not surprised. But, you know, it's still kind of stark as, as you learn more about the experience of African-Americans in the war. Their treatment within the AEF, the, the backlash in the Jim Crow society and the Jim Crow army, the attempt to import those sensibilities into France – you know, it, it leaves you wondering, you know, thanks to the color line, who exactly who was perceived as the greater enemy in some cases? You know, the, the, the German or African-Americans who were serving in your own army? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I I actually I think I say this in the book somewhere, maybe not, but that once the AEF uh, starts working hard uh, to police this, you know, that access of um, or the, the the liaisons between black soldiers and French women in particular, it does start to feel like the the AEF going back to the story I was telling earlier, and that that undergirds the whole project. You know that the war, in some ways, is pitched as this protection of white womanhood. It, it sort of does start to feel exactly as you suggest that the AEF is sort of quite literally 
you know, in, in France, among other reasons, in part to protect white womanhood from the Germans. But then once there grows to kind of see American black doughboys as part of that same threat and ends up actually kind of protecting, you know, literally and figuratively protect, trying to protect, claiming to protect uh, French women from, you know, both of those parties. So, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Well, yeah, wartime sexuality certainly does become a theme. You know, that's to say how yeah. Americans residing at the start of the 20th century were compelled to conform, you know, I guess, to a deeply repressive set of ethos when it came to sex while at yeah. war. And, you know, transgression does, of course, have different consequences based on one's proximity to whiteness, as we see in the case of Buckner. But I want to look at the book as a whole and mm-hmm. ask, you know, is if the picture of the AEF as an absent army is wholly accurate. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, the, the, um, you know, you probably know the AEF was actually pretty, uh, and I detail this in the book. I mean, it was successful if you look at uh, venereal disease rates. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they, there's a, a problem with that. Yeah. So well, I, 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 in my own work, I know looking at, at the army in China in 1900, the, the VD rates okay. are through the roof. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And then, and that's a, a big concern for Pershing uh, personally, as you, as I'm sure you know. And so early in the, in the, in the, you know, in the expeditionary period, when the, some of the first groups come over in late 1917, early 1918, there's some problems in these, in the French port cities, uh, there's some investigations, and there's this sort of multi-pronged attack on the problem. Uh, you know, I, I detail in the book that others have written about as well about education, educating uh, the doughboy, prophylactic stations, punishment, coercion, other other kinds of things. So, and this starts back in the training camps in the United States, reflecting that longer history that you just talked about and that you talked about earlier of the the, the debauched reputation. Doughboy certainly sought and found sex in France. And, <laughs> and um, the army, you know, I think, you know, you, you, I'm sure you know Pershing famously said he would not allow one single infected doughboy to, to return to the United States. Right. And my understanding from the literature on this is that, you know, he was successful in doing that, but by not letting them go back until they had been cured. <laughs> and so, so I think the pro the program that the AEF implemented to keep VD rates down by scholars who know more about this than I do, uh, by their accounts, was successful in the sense that those rates were low or went down dramatically by by late 1918. But certainly, my own work and my own experience, and I'm sure you you know you've seen this too. And when you look at the experience of regular doughboys, the the songs they sung, all kinds of things. I mean, you know, the stuff was still going on. The evidence is um, there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, of course, letters home are going to, and it's probably going on even more, you know, way more than the, of course, letters would reveal. That's not the kind of thing Doughboys would write in letters home. So I guess the, my, you know, my, my feeling on it is that it went on, um, it didn't, it went on less than it would have probably had the AEF not worked so hard to stop it, I imagine. But, you know, this is, it's one of those, you know, obviously in the second world war, there's lots of good books on this as well. The account of the Dee's family struggles to communicate with each other across the great mm-hmm. distances. I mean, it's rather poignant, you know, but so too is, you know, May Dee's experience trying to keep up her own morale in the face of local gossip 
Yeah. You know, how, how common do you think this was for working class families during the war? That's a good question. I mean, I, I think th- this is another one of those things where I sense that she was very typical. And again, that it's not something I can prove. Um, but in the sense that, you know, she had, she was a teenager. Yeah. And she had a bunch of friends that, you know, I, I've read, I got to know a lot of these, read about and got to know a lot of these people. And just like, I'm not suggesting that, you know, there's a, nothing's changed in the last hundred years, but, you know, like other teenagers, she had friends, she had enemies, she had friends who became enemies and vice versa. She wrote about all this in great detail to Lodge. You know, she had one friend in particular named Nellie that I write about who seemed, it's sort of odd reading her letters that this is a, someone she seemed to be a friend. And I remember again that this is a tiny, tiny community. Yeah. You know, I think she graduated kind of like where in Houston did she graduated with six people or something like that. So this probably is part of why friends and enemies kind of had blurry lines because, you know, you didn't have many choices here. So yeah, she had, there were these home front provocateurs and this is where I really try to kind of tie the war, you know, show the ways that the war sort of insinuated itself into existing kind of teen romantic culture, but also, you know, shaped it or, you know, there was a sort of a symbiotic relationship there where kind of dating rituals and the war and the rhetoric of the war sort of supplied got all kind of intermingled. So you had stuff that, in other words, that I think teenagers would have been doing anyway, but the war kind of gave them a vocabulary to do that. So not only kind of insinuated itself into existing kind of patterns of teen dating, but also dramatically changed them because suddenly, you know, you'd have Whereas let's say 10 years earlier in the same community, there'd be teenagers there and there'd be, you know, dating and rumor and gossip, et cetera. But no one involved would ever probably have left the county or ever would. This is a dramatically different situation now where you have all these boyfriends and husbands eventually, including other men from that community, going thousands of miles away, writing letters back that take weeks to come back, which is another subject we can talk about, which is very poignant, as you mentioned. And... So that so I guess what I'm saying is that there there are sort of existing home front patterns dealing with love and rumor and gossip that that are the war you know kind of gives a, a, a rhetoric to and becomes insinuated into but also changes in dramatic ways. Yeah, it, 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 the war doesn't disrupt these patterns, but rather exacerbates or you know brings out brings forward maybe yeah some components. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. I think and I, I think adds new strain to of distance and potential loss and other and kind of yeah, emotional problem, you know, emotional um, fears to, you know, adds those things to, to an existing, you know, network of love and dating and, and, and rumor and friendship and all these things. And so, so one, one example, you know, I never, I, I, I didn't end up using it in the book for reasons that I can't remember right now, <laughs> but I had this great poem that May wrote, and this is a good example of what we're talking about. May wrote a poem, kind of a class poem, when her, her seniors graduated. And it was a sort of tattered thing. I, I didn't have all the, and maybe this is why I didn't end up using it, because there was a lot of incomplete sentences and everything. But it, it sort of told, and I think this was a common thing, because wearing Houston's classmates did the same thing when he graduated in Selma. But she wrote a poem because, again, there's six or seven people in the graduating class. So it's sort of like, you know, all this rhymed, you know, I won't try to rhyme it. But, you know, Bob loved to play basketball. And remember that time where he fell into the the river? And, you know, Andrew 
loved music and dancing and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, so, but in May's poem, all the, almost all the, um, kind of the, this sort of, uh, ridicule and good natured ridicule of all her classmates was all filtered through the war experience. Almost all of it, you know, it was like Fred didn't pass his physical, so he had to stay home and, you know, sort of gently mocking his manner, that sort of thing. You know, Susie's uh, man went off to France and came back and she was a happy bride and, and May's soldier boy, Lige, you know, and I remember this was written actually while they were all still over there. So actually she didn't know it yet about who'd be coming back or whatever. But my point is just that the, the war got really sort of filtered in to everyday experience in some ways, changing it in some ways, um, just sort of amplifying, or as you say, drawing out certain parts of it or making them more poignant, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah. Well, talking about poignancy, I mean, wearing Houston dies in action. Right. I, I think on mm-hmm. October 14th, the date's a little fuzzy. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it is fuzzy. That's what I believe. Yeah. In yeah. uh, fighting along the Air River line, you know, pretty, pretty dense, you know, woods around a clear shame woods and all. You know, his death is instructive, I think, you know, in part because it happens at a very critical point for the AEF in the Musargon. You know, what 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 is the state of the American army at this point? As you know, that that offensive and a bunch of other ones started that were kind of meant to end the war or they hoped would end the war around September 26th. And they go forward. My guys, two of the guys are involved in them. And Lige ends up kind of coming into it late. But there's a big surge and then they sort of stall. And I'm not, a, you know, this is not, I'm not a military historian by trade. And so uh, you actually, you probably know more than I do about some of this, but, but there's sort of a stalling and a kind of regrouping. Um, and then there's a couple other kind of surges. And I think one of them happens right in that period that leads up to his death. And there's another one, uh, the the last one late in October that ends up being kind of pushing all the way to November 11th. So uh, I, I guess to sum it up, uh, you know, th- this is a, you know, and, and as you know better than I do, I mean, in retrospect, it's obviously a big, massive, and ultimately successful offensive. But it didn't, you know, there were, it, it wasn't always clear it was going to be that, is my understanding. And so, and and, and even when, it, even if, if, even if, even for those who are optimistic, it would eventually prevail, it was an incredibly costly offensive. Uh, there were all sorts of and this is part of the true of the broader AEF campaign, which again, military historians know much more about than I do, but all sorts of logistical problems yeah. and um, problems with ill-trained or hastily trained soldiers. And so that's sort of a subcurrent in the story that, that other authors have done a much more thorough job with, but that, you know, this was not, it's sort of easy to think of these sort of operations or these wars in general, because we know how they ended <laughs> as sort of smooth you know, right. albeit costly, but smooth operations. But this was a, this was a messy, deadly, and halting offensive. That that's how I see it. Well, I mean, and what comes through, I think, too, in you know, not just wearing Houston's story, but also Arthur Hebner, and to a lesser degree, Lige um, Dees. Mm-hmm. You know, for for the common soldier, I mean, there's really no, they don't have a larger picture of this. For that's them, right. You know what what they exist to it, is the war for them is what they can see and what they can feel. It's a very tactile, very, very visual experience that's also very limited. And, you know, it's easy for historians. You know, we step back 
have to have the luxury of looking at this, you know, years later with all of this data. And, you know, we've, we've become conditioned to, you know, look at sweeping arrows on maps or, you know, large units when really, you know, what war is in many ways is a single person's experience. And you capture yeah, that. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I, that's exactly how I feel. And that's actually why, you know, I wanted to include that bigger picture of where, where these guys fit in that, in the story of that offensive. But as you know, I mean, I, I don't, it's not the, the big sweeping arrows kind of thing. Um, although I think I do have a couple maps that may have an, a couple arrows on them. I'll, I'll that, that's not, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, that, no, and actually now that I think about it, I think the arrows are just pointing to where my guys were, I believe. But, um, but yeah, so anyway, I agree with you. I think I wanted to kind of emphasize that the personal experience and the and, and the fact is, as you say, those guys, they didn't know about the big sweeping s- stuff. I mean, in fact, at one point, Waring uh, and Presley Cleveland, his best friend from Selma, were quite close to each other. And, you know, they had no idea. They Neither of them knew it, as far as I can tell. Um, so it's really, you know, it's very poignant, especially in, a, in, in, you know, and this is maybe different now in modern, more modern warfare with different kinds of communication that's available. But you're right. I mean, these guys were, you know, they, I, I often wonder what this felt like to them, that they kind of had no idea how the broader thing was going. Yeah. And they couldn't communicate anything about it either with their own right, families right. or anybody, thanks to the censorship of the war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Really isolated. Well, you know, how does Natalie Scott experience the war? I mean, does it change your view of the world or, or more specifically question. society? Yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting. So she, to kind of summarize her experience, she goes over to, to France. She works in a Paris office of the Red Cross for a while. She does some kind of clerical stuff. <clears throat> but then um, there's in, when the big German offensive starts in March of 18, this causes Paris to flood with refugees. So she's kind of thrown into real kind of hands-on work with the very people actually that had, as I say in the book, had fired her kind of outrage, you know, or whose victimhood had fired her outrage earlier. So she has that experience. She ends up going in closer to the lines and works um, as a nurse. There's a, there's a, one point in Beauvais, France, she, she actually saves um, some doughboys' lives during an air raid and, and ends up winning the Croix de Guerre from the, the French government for that. Stays in, in France through 19, then comes home to a kind of hero's welcome in New Orleans. Um, and this is getting kind of wrapping around your question. She goes on to the, a lifetime of philanthropic work. She goes back over there during World War II. Um, I don't know. I don't have at my fingertips a lot of the details of what her experience then was. But she ends up in Mexico where she dies actually doing charitable work in a very poor community in Mexico. And she's a kind of beloved figure yeah. there at the time of her death in the, in the mid 20th century. She um, never married, did she? Never married. That's right. I say in the book that she had this fake marriage to, to James Cobb, I think is his first name, the, the famous journalist um, who actually you talked about Richard Slotkin earlier, yeah. but Cobb wrote the kind of famous pieces uh, about uh, black soldiers she has a kind of fake marriage to him. And as I say in the book, I think, or maybe I don't, I don't know. She, that's, that's, that's as close as she got as far as I know. So doesn't marry, um, ends up also, I skipped over this part, but she, she's kind of, she ends up rubbing elbows with a lot of the new Orleans literary scene and ends up meeting some famous authors and being part of that, that whole thing. So, but how does it change her view? I mean, my, my sense is, the war, of course, you know, it broadened her horizons. I mean, she she was part of a, an educated elite set in New Orleans, kind of like where, where in Houston was. 
so she had actually had traveled. She was actually traveling when the Great War broke out in 1914. I think it was in Guatemala or something. So she had had a, a kind of broader, maybe to, to your earlier question, maybe somewhat atypical um, experience if you look at the whole population, even before she went to France. But I think it confirmed a lot of what she felt about the country I mean, and about the country's kind of moral fiber. I mean, she write, writes a lot. She's very, she seems like a very idealistic person when she was young. And, you know, she, she writes in very glowing terms about the Doughboy and his commitment to democracy, um, very romantic terms. This is, of course, ties in well with the theme, the broader themes that I, I'm establishing in the project. And she, you know, and this is all judging from letters she wrote to her mother. I don't know how she felt in the other kind of private moments, but she, you know, the war, to kind of put it colloquially, I mean, it kind of doesn't get her down in a way. I mean, she, she she finds it tragic in a lot of cases. She, I write about this. I mean, she she writes back about losing doughboys, about tragic French characters who've lost you know their sons to war and this sort of thing. But she keeps this very kind of patriotic, upbeat kind of attitude that I think. So for in other words, for her, I think the war confirms a lot of what she feels about American kind of moral fiber and and right. and even democratic kind of convictions. You know, I mean, there are two, um, different, there are two different case studies, but I can't help but think of Vera Britton's experience of memoir, Testament of Youth, as you're describing Natalie Scott's outlook. They're just so wholly opposite of each other. And I, I wonder if that, you know, in part, maybe sometimes it's inescapable, but I wonder if, you know, if it, her, you know her American identity or experience is so vastly different. Yeah, I think that might be might be true. I mean, she... You know, she definitely, yeah, being distant from the war, you know, you almost get the sense reading her letters, but how it's interesting, like that the war is sort of a, it's like, it's a, it's a very real thing to her. Of course, she's seeing death and she's, she's as in it as anyone. I mean, she's caring for wounded soldiers of on all sides, but it really, and this kind of gets to your other question about what it did to her, her views of the world. It's almost, it, it, it often in her descriptions of it to her mother, it's like this great adventure in a way. Right. And and I and I think part of that has to do with the distance that you you know as you kind of just alluded to maybe uh, as an American that this was you know she actually says this in one letter she, that she got teary as she saw the French coastline and she said I'm not prone to like emotional opera she said that's her mother all the time but I got a little teared up she said with uh, she said something like you know with our arms locked together kind of co- comradeship or something like the arms across the sea kind of thing so I think she saw she saw this thing she was doing in very grand kind of terms. And I don't mean that pejoratively, but I, I think she saw, she saw this as something that, you know, she, she came from this privileged upbringing and that she could sort of go over to this theater almost, it was a theater of war, but also kind of a theater of her own match maturation really. And that's sort of, I guess to your earlier question, I think that's a, a role it played for her as well. And maybe kind of ended up firing or kind of propelling her into that lifetime of service that she, that she ends up pursuing. Right. Well, Arthur um, Ebner has the misfortune. You know, he's wounded as the war is coming to an end, you know, on November 11th, you know, he later dies in hospital uh, while undergoing treatment. Now you're connected to, to Arthur Ebner, you know, to, mm-hmm. you know, personally as well as professionally. And, I'm curious as to how you contextualize the idea of his death. I mean, granted, it's a century ago. You never would have met the man, but nevertheless, he shares your name. There is a direct connection there. You've heard these stories for years, but you're also a professional historian who has to acquire a sense of detachment 
how do you reconcile that? That's a good question. Um, I thought about this a lot as I was writing it and, you know, and, and kind of just even more broadly beyond him and I'll, I'll come back to him, but you know, how to write about the other characters too. I mean, I thought a lot about emotion and how much I actually wrote a piece for the OAH has a magazine called the American historian. You probably know. And I, I wrote a piece about this a few years ago about how to write history with emotion, not how to, but you know, just my opinion about it. And I definitely, what I kind of came upon, you know, I have, I'm sure you've done this too. I mean, or everyone does. I mean, there's a lot of deleted sentences that did not end up in this book. Oh yeah. Um, uh, so, and a lot of those were actually kind of where I, I thought like maybe I was drifting too close to telling readers how to feel about these things, if you know what I mean. And in, in the case of narrating his death was actually a very emotional experience for me. And actually, it so was narrating Waring's death. I mean, I really got to know these characters in writing this book. And a lot of it was a very poignant emotional experience for me as a writer. Now, the thing I had to deal with, though, was I have some friends who are novelists and they write fiction. And, and I, I had this mantra in my head throughout, which was to show, don't tell. So if you want a scene to evoke emotion in your readers, which I did, actually, I mean, I, I, one of the purposes of this book, I don't know if I say it in there, I don't think I do, but is I actually want readers to care about these, these characters emotionally. I think a lot of our history is written in a very bloodless way, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just what I wanted to do in this project was, and this sounds, of course, corny and cliche, but I wanted to, you know, World War I characters are so black and white, literally, or immobile, literally, in the way we often see them. And so I wanted to kind of re-inject some movement, some color, and some emotion to that that generation. So, but then I, but this went back to my point, I mean, I wanted to show, I wanted to, to show people what happened to them, show them their words, but not tell the reader kind of how to feel about it. So well, I hope what I did in the end was I wanted to kind of, and I'm, as I narrated Arthur's wounding, you know, to do it sort of sparsely, um, even though, again, this is a relative of mine, I, I think, I hope I, I told it and, and thought about it and, and wrote about it in a way that um, is similar to the way I wrote about Waring's, even though, you know, I had a lot of other kinds of feelings about it as I was writing it. I felt like, to get to your point, I mean, I wanted to be, I wanted to have that detachment, you know, in the, in the, in the words themselves. So, but yeah, you're, you, it's a good point. I mean, it was a juggling act a little bit, but but to some extent, you know, to the extent that I cared emotionally about him or the other characters, I, I wanted to let that through and, and get that across to the readers. Okay. Well, you know, the question of mortality becomes all the more important when you consider the response of the surviving families. You know, and yeah. we're looking at Buckner, Houston, and, and Hubner here. Mm-hmm. How do each of them process this question of loss? You know, at what point does, you know, all this, this noble rhetoric, you know, wartime rhetoric of sacrifice, when does it turn into into just bitter ashes for them? Well, I have the best kind of evidence for that. And it's actually quite rich with wearing Houston's family. Um, Because I I sort of, again, you can't get inside the parlor, so to speak, um, see how they really kind of dealt with things in, in the quiet moments. But I do have their letters talking about it. I have letters more imp- and, and equally importantly to them about about it. Now, of course, there's a somewhat fragmentary nature of this kind of emotional evidence because, as I said, you see kind of snapshots of it. But I feel like Waring's family in particular is poignant because, you know, they, as I said to you earlier, that, you know, they had 
I think, largely understood as far as I can tell. They had understood the war in these familial terms. They had understood it as something that would burnish Waring's reputation, his masculinity, the family's reputation, the community. And again, I, I, I hate to be repetitive. I don't mean to imply those are kind of crass motivations at all. I think those are quite normal and, and reasonable motivations. But I think that's largely how they saw his service. So that then begs – when he's then killed in that war, I mean, how does a family deal with that? Is sort of what I try to to gesture at in those parts of the book. So a lot of the well-wishers that wrote to Waring's mother – and another thing that's interesting is that they always wrote to his mother in almost every case mm. – as I'm sure you know, I mean, this dating back to the 19th century, maybe earlier, you know, women were considered the kind of more principal mourners in families, whether, you know, again, not that men didn't mourn, but, but that that was sort of the job of women, if you will. So it was, it was one so, of their public activities. It was, it was their access exactly. to the public. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the civil war is rich with that sort of stuff. So, so when the, you know, generals and colonels and so on and friends and, whoever wrote to the family to express condolences, they wrote to his mother. Anyway, they framed the war largely and Waring's loss largely in those terms that public culture had. They said, you know, there's some, some of these letter writers did, the, you know, a couple of the, like, I think one of the generals or something mentions something about democracy or the great cause, but all the rest of them mention the more personal elements. Um, they mention that that Waring showed his character. And some of them, this actually gets into the weeds a little bit about the day he died. A few of them talked about that, you know, he he died with facing the enemy, they say, even though some of them were actually in no position to know that, whether that was true or not. But they he died facing the enemy. He died painlessly. A lot of this sort of stuff, he, he, he died so that you all, that we all might pursue daily life and happiness, which is another, you know, part of that broader kind of family community-oriented sort of set of justifications. And then the sort of kind of a smoking gun piece of evidence I found was that one of his friends, this was the one letter that went to his dad, said Waring, you know, I, you know, died to protect, he was talking to Waring's father here. He said he died to protect your wife and his sister. Um, so again, whether any of these, you know, to what, what these words meant to the people that are, that wrote them, you know, it's hard to, to, is hard to grasp, but, what they suggest is this kind of um, vocabulary of meaning that I think the war years kind of cultivated and that found purchase among regular people. And I have no reason to believe they didn't you know, really see things that way. So I think for Waring's family, I have no idea, again, behind closed doors, if his family found comfort in that kind of stuff. I do have one window into how his sweetheart and I think wife – it's a little unclear if they did, they got married. But anyway, his wife or sweetheart throughout the book is Carrie Goodwin. I do know that she writes a letter to his mother um, in like 1920, I think, that specifically kind of said, I won't quote it here, but she specifically said, you know, all the the sort of um, promises of this war that, you know, that that it would that it would burnish masculine virtue. I mean, she doesn't use these words, but that she implies very strongly as suggests in the book that all that was ringing hollow for her. And she actually said, you know, I see all the other boys and girls, she said, you know, paired up, starting families together. And all I'm left with is this kind of hollow, empty feeling. Yeah. So again, I don't suggest that this is how every American felt about things, but I, do, I think it's a, a vivid, you know, qualitative example of, uh, you know, the way that, that rhetoric of, of familial meaning and sacrifice, that that would somehow sort of soften the blow of loss in this particular case didn't really work. Right. 
reaching the end, I mean, we pulled it all together. Mm-hmm. You know, the stories of the, the survivors of the dead, their families, um, you know, the, the nation at large. What would you offer as maybe a primary or a set of primary experiences or outlooks we should take away from the First World War a century later? Yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, I, I guess I mean, one would be one I've already alluded to, which is just to remember, I, I think I wanted to, and this is true about any war, including ones that are going on right now, is the this radiating impact of wars on families that often, and again, I'm not the first author to, to focus on this. There's some other great stuff on this uh, with World War II and other conflicts that, you know, these wars don't end for the families that experience them when the war ends. Again, I think to those of us who study this kind of stuff, that's obvious, but I think to a lot of people, it's not. So I want to—I I want people to come away with it, with a just a kind of a, a richer, and this is not a, a sophisticated scholarly point, but just a richer emotional human kind of connection with, with the experiences of that generation in particular, which I think is, seems so distant to people. I guess sort of connected to that, I want, and I end the book with some discussion of this, I want people to see how World War I kind of continued to resonate throughout the century. There are other, of course, Europeanists have written a lot about this and, and, and scholars of other parts of the world, all the, the long echoes of World War I in the 20th century, 21st century, the continuing turmoil in the Middle East, for example. And there's a, a rich literature about this, thing, you know, Great War scholars kind of shouting at the public, like, you know, remember this war and look at the, the continuing implications of it for world politics and so on. So I want to do a kind of domestic version of that in this book where I, I sort of end by talking about how the war story, this kind of chivalric white oriented story of masculine virtue, how it comes out of World War One and what happens to it over the next hundred years. And I kind of suggest that some of the disruptions to that story that uh, the disruptions of race, the disruptions of the kind of, you know, the potentially badly behaving doughboy, uh, the disruptions that, you know, loss and death and wounding and and the story of veterans, the, the, those are also disruptions of that kind of neat story that soldiers march off to fight for family and country and come back to adulation, live happily ever after. You know, the whole post-war story of veterans benefits and all that, I, I go into somewhat at the end to suggest that the the great war had these long echoes for kind of how we think in the 20th century about war and the family. There's other great literature about this coming out about the all volunteer force and about the military currently. I mean, now, you know, as you know, we have a military that is in contrast to the great war and way more so world war two, a, a tiny minority experience for most, you know, for, for the, the military, the, the vast majority of Americans have no particular, no, no individual personal connection to the military in terms of a family member in particular who serves. Fewer and fewer families are, are bearing that burden. And so I guess the book, the bigger takeaway I want to kind of end it with, I suppose, is to think about those connections between between the military and family history. Um, I think ultimately people fight in large measure for their families. It's not the only reason they do. Um, but I think um, I want to show that in this book and get people to kind of continue um, to think about that and to talk about what we think about that, you know. Um, so that that's – there are other ones, but I suppose those are a couple of the takeaways. Okay. Okay. Well, Andrew, uh, Andrew we're closing in on the end of our interview. And 
we do have some customary final questions that we ask sure. that we ask all of our guests. First, what are you reading these days that you might want to share with our audience? And then second, hmm. what's next up for you academically speaking? Okay. What's the next project? Sure. The first question is much easier to answer than the second one. <laughs> uh, so um, right now I'm reading Brian Lynn's book called Elvis's Army. And it came out a year or two ago with Harvard. And it's a study of it's a study of the, the military in the early Cold War, basically in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm reviewing it for a journal. So I'm about two thirds of the way through it. It's a good book on um, it's on really how the army dealt with the new kind of reality of atomic warfare. And um, the sort of hook of the book is that Elvis was inducted in the army in the fifties, and um, but then it, it uses that as a kind of springboard to talking about uh, the peacetime draft and the the way the army marketed itself, the way it kind of tried to reorganize on a kind of logistical and institutional level. I'm only two thirds of the way through the book, but so far it's a pretty bleak story <laughs> of um, of kind of mismanagement and and um, and in transition, I guess, as a kinder way. To put it, no mention of the king at all, or <laughs> no, he he uh, he comes in and out again. He he's the kind of framing hook of the book yeah. in, in his induction in the fifties, and then he makes some other appearances. And then I actually just a section I just read this morning is about GI Blues. I think was the story, the name of the movie that he made, sort of loosely about his experiences. So, but in terms of what's next, the the most likely project actually is sort of it's one that I wrote about in this book a little bit very very quickly and that uh, Chad Williams, whose book I talked about earlier, Torchbearers of Democracy, he mentions in, in more detail. And I've actually spoken to him about doing this project. There was, is the, the Houston race riot of 1970. Oh. You know, so the, the, the 24th Infantry, the um, African-American unit with a kind of rich history is, is down there in Houston protecting, I think, the, um, the, the construction site for what became the, the camp that my, my relative Arthur went to train in. And long story short, there's an incident in Houston with the white police involving a black woman's arrest. And um, they go back, the the soldiers go back to the base and they they sort of organize and march into Houston. And there's a big kind of pitched battle where a a dozen or so, I think a little, maybe a few more um, people are killed. This ends up leading to the largest, I'm pretty sure this is true, but the largest murder trial in American history in terms of the number of defendants. And I think 19 of the soldiers end up being executed. And then the other hundred or so, um, I forget how many end up incarcerated, but they all eventually are, are pardoned um, over the next several uh, couple decades, I believe. But now there's a good book about this that I actually haven't um, finished reading yet, but it's a, that was written in the 70s called A Night of Violence. So I would, when I talked to Chad about it a few months ago, you know, he, I won't go into details, but there's, he was saying you know, the book holds up pretty well. I'd like to sort of, I, obviously I want to read it carefully and see what I could sort of add to it. But I have this sort of urge, you know, my first book was a kind of broad, wide, overly <laughs> ambitious cultural history. The second one that, that you, that we've talked about today was a, a book that was, you know, more narrowly focused, but about kind of symbol and experience. I'm, I'm this, I kind of crave going even further down that path toward you know a story of a of a discrete event and then it's it's fall, the fallout afterwards yeah. so that that's that's the main candidate well thank you bob I, I really appreciate the opportunity yeah well again andrew thank you for taking the time to join us at new books in military history and to all of our listeners this is your host bob wintermute signing off thank you for listening <laughs>